Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unae Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Ethiopian activist calls for calm after 16 die in clashes, and South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says the law will take its cause against those implicated in state capture inquiry. In economics news, Sudan seeks to attract foreign business back to the country. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The IEC in Botswana says counting of parliamentary votes is progressing well. Counting has, however, been completed in five of the 57 constituencies where Umbrella for Democratic Change and Botswana Democratic Party have already registered victories. This year's elections are believed to be the fiercely contested in the history of the country. Botswana IEC spokesperson Usupile Maroba says overall results for both councils and parliamentary seats will be released later in the day. But the two main contenders, UDC and BDP, are leading the pack. Where we are now, we have uh, five seats uh, already having two uh, political parties ahead of the rest. Uh, We have uh, two seats won by the BDP already and three seats won by UDC. South Africa's ruling ANC Secretary-General Ace Mahashule and his ZANU-PF counterpart Obert Mpofu are expected to lead anti-Zimbabwe sanctions picket at the Bait Bridge border post near Musina and Limpopo province. The picket will follow the 10th summit of former liberation movements in southern Africa held at the Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe last month. The U.S. and the European Union imposed sanctions on Zimbabwe between 2002 and 2003. This after Zimbabwe implemented the Land Reform Programme in 2000. The United Nations has reopened its office in the Nigerian capital Abuja. This comes more than eight years after Boko Haram militants destroyed it in a suicide attack. The BBC's Ishak Khaled reports. Since the bombing of the main UN office in Nigeria in August 2011, organizations of various agencies have been scattered around the city, operating in smaller buildings provided by the Nigerian authorities or some NGOs. They are now to come back together in a new impressive four-story structure. The UN humanitarian chief, Mark Lockcock, said the opening of the rebuilt office was a day for celebration and an act of defiance against terror. He described the 2011 bombing as a barbaric and cowardly attack on Nigeria and the UN's values of peace, freedom and justice. The Kenyan government says 29 people have been killed by flooding caused 
by flooding caused by heavy rains in the past three weeks. Around 11,700 people have been displaced in that time and some 10,000 livestock have died. Worst affected are the northeastern and coastal regions. Kenya's meteorological department has warned that heavy rains will continue in the coming weeks, but say weather conditions will likely improve by the end of December. Thousands took to the streets of Guinea in the largest of a series of protests. This was over suspected effort by President Alpha Conde to seek a third term that have led to the jailing of a dozen opposition campaigners and politicians. Meanwhile, the Economic Community of West African States Commission President Jean-Claude Cassis called on government and opposition elements to employ dialogue to seek solutions to the challenges. It also made reference to deadly protests of 14 and 15 October. Authorities jailed a number of protesters earlier this week. The statement also stressed that the tensions could potentially affect the wider sub-region. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective. There is security tension in some parts of Ethiopia following a standoff between civilians and security officers on Wednesday in the capital, Addis Ababa. This was caused by an alarm raised by a popular activist from the Oromo ethnic group who said that his security is being changed in order to have him attacked by a mob. The activist, Jawa Mohammed, has been vocal against the Prime Minister. Channel Africa's Koleto Anjohi reports from Addis Ababa. The activist Jawar Mohammed is famous among people of the Oromo ethnic group from which the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed comes from. Ethiopian-born but with U.S. citizenship, Mohammed was seen as one of the instrumental people in change of leadership of Ethiopia's government in 2018. He led his fellow Oromo people, mainly youth, to criticize and protest against the leadership of Ethiopia for the past 27 years that was seen as bent towards one ethnic group, the Tigray. Persistent protests that he campaigned for mainly online led to the ruling coalition of Ethiopia relenting leadership to an Oromo, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Mohammed returned to Ethiopia that year. Since then, he has been known as a controversial figure, using his television station for activism. On Tuesday night, he raised an alarm that there was an attempt to have him attacked by a mob after the police reportedly attempted to withdraw the security he had been offered by the state for over a year now. Whether that 
encourage some security officials to independently act or whether he gave them green light, I'm not certain about it yet. However, I don't believe this was an isolated incident. This prompted people from the Oromo ethnic group to camp at his house in Addis Ababa, attempting to protect him. The people were chanting against Prime Minister Abi Ahmed. The police agrees that it wanted to withdraw his security details, but only because the government feels that it is now safe for him to enjoy the general security provided to all other citizens. On Monday, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, while addressing the parliament, accused people with double citizenship of coming to Ethiopia when things were calm and escaping during tough times. But Jawar Mohammed now says he is considering direct political position in the government, despite being one of the people the Prime Minister alluded to. I'm, ser I'm seriously considering uh, direct and active participation in the coming election, and even before that, to, shape, to ensure that the transition that thousands sacrificed for, for will not fall back. The Wednesday activities raised tension in many parts of the city, with confrontation between Oromo and the police being reported in different parts of the country. On Thursday, some areas beyond Addis Ababa still remain under tension. Roads have been closed, especially to areas leading towards the Oromo region past the capital, Addis Ababa, with many young people wielding sticks, chanting praises for activist Jawar Mohammed. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has been in Russia for the Russia-Africa summit, which was held on the 23rd and 24th. His office has not yet commented on the ongoing tension. Koletran Johi, Channel Africa Radio, in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. South Africa's President Sul Ramaphosa says the law will take its course against those who are implicated in the state capture inquiry. Speaking to the SABC on the sidelines of the Russia-Africa summit, the president said the Department of Justice is dealing with the matter of the extradition of those who are outside the country and evading the law to be held accountable. The Department of Justice has been working hard to try to bring the Guptas to South Africa to answer to allegations levelled against the two Guptas. President Sol Ramaphosa spoke to Nihapunia in Sochi, Russia, on the range of issues. This has been a very, very meaningful summit, more meaningful than I expected. It started off with uh, engaging the business sector from various countries in Africa, interacting with uh, the Russian business sector. That I found to be most meaningful because uh, the businesses that came from, say, South Africa spend a number of sectors of our economy and their engagement with uh, a number of Russian businesses in, in mining, in ICT and uh, oil extraction and all that were, were really good and meaningful. And I think from here they will have move from contact to contract, and uh, there should be a number of deals that will ensue. It was uh, an engagement that spanned from history to the present and also looking into the future. It was a visit high on optics, uh, but do you think the deliverables that you're walking away with uh, have been as substantial? And if not, what is the timeline that you're looking at when it comes to deepening ties with Russia? Well, the takeaways are quite numerous uh, in the sense that Russia is already as a, a nation uh, in all its facets, both as a state player as well as, as uh, a player in, through its various companies, is already engaged in a number of countries on the African continent. 
So it's very difficult to put a time frame because some of the projects are, are ongoing and some uh, are, are at their nascent stage, haven't just started, and some are midstream. And so it's multifaceted, but it is also uh, not uh, a process which is uh, based on handouts. Uh, it's based on meaningful uh, engagement, collaboration, which I find to be very mature and, and most useful. And before the summit kicked off, you had earlier this week President Putin um, outlining what his pitch to African nations was going to be, where he said that unlike the West, Russia's engagement uh, is uh, one among equals. It's um, uh, going to let Africa set the tone uh, for the kind of engagement it wants, but also at the same time he called the West exploitative and self-serving. Is that something that you would agree with? Well, President Putin was very strong on saying that we want deal with African countries as equals, uh, with, with due respect. And uh, we also want Africa to lead in this process, uh, that wherever there are, Af there are problems, they should be seen as African problems that require African solutions. And their intervention uh, will be more based on the requirements uh, of African countries and those requirements will be determined by those countries and there will be never anything that is imposed. So for me, that, that was a very good type of approach and it set a very good tone to just getting the summit going. And all of us have a sense that we're looking forward to the next summit, which will be in three years' time in Africa. So it's been good. And speaking of help, uh, I want to ask you about the Russian bombers that landed in South Africa yesterday. Was that something that you and President Putin discussed in your bilateral? Because the timing was interesting. On the day that this summit opened, you have these jets landing in South Africa. What is the message you're trying to send here to the world, perhaps you and President Putin together? Uh, because this has been labeled a rare sort of military cooperation. Well, Russia and South Africa have long had... Uh dealings at the military level. We, we do exchange uh, a number of activities, our, our air force, our armies. Uh, we, we, we exchange a lot of things. We send people for training here. They also send people uh, just to observe how things go between the two countries. And it was just fortuitous that uh, the planes landed as I was taking off. Uh, and they're huge planes. And uh, they, they are just uh, general mutual exercises uh, that happen amongst countries all over the world. These types of things happen. And, uh, of course, the good thing is that much as they are huge bombers and nuclear bombers, they are not armed. They, they're just really testing the Tupelovs. Uh, and they have landed in South Africa in the past, many years ago, uh, and uh, this time round, they are on an exchange, and they will fly off again. So we should never worry because mutual exercises. They also enabled us to our Air Force people to go in and look at these uh, planes and the technology that they have and carry. So it's, a, it's, it's something that's good. We should never look at the negative side of it. It's not a threat to anyone. 
is just, uh, you know, Air Force mutual exercises. That was President Cyril Ramaphosa speaking to Niha Punya in Sochi, Russia. Here the Legends Dinner proudly brought to you by J.M. Busha on Friday the 25th of October 2019 at the Woodmead Country Club. Catch Channel Africa on www.channelafrica.co.za or on DSTV Channel 802 as we will be bringing you Africa Digest live from the event from 1900 hours to 2000 hours Central African time. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective. South Africa's public protector Busisu Mkabane says President Sul Ramaphosa has shown his inconsistency when he is supposed to implement a remedial action against some ministers. Mkabane says the president seems to act swiftly against some ministers who are implicated in her reports while applying delayed tactics against some. She was addressing students at the Tuana University of Technology in Soshanguve, north of Pretoria. Clement Matlang reports. Kwebane told students that President Cyril Ramaphosa should lead by example. She says proper governance entails leaders showing consistency when applying the law against those in the wrong. Kwebane says the president appears to be acting inconsistently. She says Ramaphosa has acted swiftly against ministers like Malusi Kikaba while delaying against ministers such as Pravin Kodan. I'm speaking about inconsistency because I'm giving those examples that I had findings and remedial actions against Minister Brown, Minister Van Royen, Malusi Kikaba, and it didn't... Um, take any delays or being taken on review or interdicted for the president to implement. What I'm saying is a good governance, accountability and transparency. We need to be consistent in whatever we're doing. Kebane has also denied allegations by her outgoing deputy Kevin Malunga that he was sidelined from handling high-profile cases. In an interview with the SAPC, Malunga has also raised concern about a number of cases the Office of the Public Protector has lost in the past few months. Kebane says there is no evidence suggesting that some high-profile cases were investigated in secrecy. In this environment of security of the country, you're not only dealing with, uh, you deal with security of the people, the infrastructure, you're dealing with security of your documents, you're dealing with security of your information, you're dealing with security of your systems. So therefore, the kind of work which has been delegated to the DPP, he did that, and any other investigator who's delegated the work. So there's nothing which is done in secret. The public protector says some investigating officials were part of a plot to sabotage her as an individual, especially in matters she lost in the courts. Kwebane says these investigators sought to spread negative information about her and fueled perceptions that she was incompetent. Don't have to have uh, officials who will then sabotage the public protector because this public protector is always in the media with uh, being uh, labelled this person who uh, is uh, incompetent, doesn't understand the law and all those, and you then put or you don't put information to my detriment. Reading the report, understanding it, and you have hidden some information which I couldn't be in all those uh, records which are there. 
Meanwhile, Kwebani assured the students that her office will show urgency in investigating some of the issues they raised. I'm Clement Matlangu, SAPC News, Pretoria. AFRI Forum's head of private prosecutions, advocate Gerinel, says they've served papers on these on South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority seeking a way forward to prosecute EFF leader Julius Malema. The organization wants Malema to face corruption charges regarding the activities of his on-point engineering company. The lobby group has also accused Malema of irregular land purchase and money laundering. The matter has been pending since 2015. Fanel Schumer reports. Afroforum strongly believes that EFF leader Julius Malimam should be prosecuted for alleged corruption, assault and firing of a firearm in a build-up area. The organization has lambasted the NPA for playing delaying tactics in issuing them with prosecution certificate against Malimam. The allegations against Malimam relate to the irregular transaction of land worth millions of rents as well as tender irregularities some 10 years ago. Afroforum's head of private prosecutions, Hirnel, gives the background of the matter involving Malimam. It's very well known how the money flowed that resulted in the purchase of the farm Skelkrons. The role of Mr. Malema that he played in the purchase and the registration of the farm is well known. It's also a fact that when the farm was seized and sold in execution, nobody put up a defense. The farm was, was bought for four odd million rand, for just over four million rand. It was sold in execution for 2.8 million rand. And when it was sold, nobody claimed the farm to say that the farm was bought with money that they could explain. Afroforum says it is capable of taking Malemam through private prosecution. Nell says their hands are tied as a result of the delay by the NPA in granting them a certificate of prosecution. We met with the NPA to try and convince them to re-enroll the matter. We implored them to re-enroll the matter. Then in July this year, we cautioned them to re-enroll the matter. Otherwise, we'll take steps. And um, we have not had any meaningful response. And we've now served papers on the NPA. We served Mandalma's papers on the NPA to force them just to do the jobs, to take a decision or not. Afroforum also intends prosecuting former SARS Commissioner Tom Moyanim on charges of assault and damage to property, which happened in 2018. According to Nero, a certificate to prosecute Moyani has been issued. So I could today announce that we've now been briefed to prosecute the matter on behalf of the complainant, Lerato Mahila. She's also the mother of the accused's grandchild. So the charges is an assault on uh, Lerato Mahila. What is interesting to know is that when this occurred, Mr. Monyane was still the commissioner of the South African Revenue Service. What's also interesting to know is this incident happened on the 14th of May 2018. The NPA, without a consultation with the victim, declined to prosecute by the 28th of May. Afroforum is targeting criminal cases of individuals which the NPA has declined to prosecute. The NPA declined to comment. Fanuel Schumer, SABC News, Pretoria. South Africa's opposition parties have reacted to the resignation of former Democratic Alliance leader Musimaimani as the leader of the main opposition and from the DA. Some commended Maimani for his commitment to strengthening democracy and accountability. Lula Mamakia has more from Cape Town. Former DA Chief Whip John Stienhaisen says it was an honor to work with Maimani. 
it has been my greatest honour of my life to serve both him and this caucus here in Parliament. I'm very proud of the caucus that I've been part of, and I absolutely believe that the work that we do here is the bedrock of building the alternative in South Africa. And we're going to continue doing that. Uh, it doesn't matter whether I'm sitting in the Chief Whip's bench or whether I'm sitting on the back bench. Uh, I believe that we have to build a strong alternative in South Africa, that there needs to be a strong opposition to the ANC here in Parliament, and we will continue to do that. Uh, and certainly not going to be held back by the recent events. I disagree with Mr. Maimani that the DA is not the vehicle for change. I believe it is the only viable vehicle for change in South Africa. IFP President Emeritus Mangosutu Butelezi also honored Maimane, while PAC President Mzwanele Nyonzo said the DA is showing its true colors. I think there is commitment to liberty and democracy are beyond any question. And he has served with the utmost dedication. His leadership of the Democratic Alliance undoubtedly served the cause of greater social cohesion. And for that, we will honor him. And I'm sure history will also honor him. The DA is starting to show its true colors. And uh, we've been saying this, that the DA does not represent the interests of the African people but the interests of the white minority people. They've been building a Berlin wall around white privileges. And we're glad that at last even the former leader of DA is coming up to say the same thing that we've been saying, that these guys do not represent Africans. Freedom Front Plus leader Dr. Peter Grunewald also added his voice. I foresee that for the future there are going to be more prominent uh, people in the DA and it is also quite clear that they are busy with a specific strategy uh, to see how much damage they can cause the democratic alliance. So that is really the effect of the resignation of Musi Maimani as leader and as a member of the democratic alliance. That report by Lula Mamakia. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Kibali Gold Mines, SPRL, has revealed its plan to boost investment in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where it has been operating since 2009. This was announced by the company's chief executive officer, Mark Bristow, after meeting DRC Prime Minister Sylvester Ilunga Ilukamba. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The meeting with the Democratic Republic of Congo's Prime Minister Sylvester Ilunga Ilunkampa was an opportunity for the Kibali Gold Mining Chief Executive Officer to reveal the company's plan of boosting its investment here. The Kibali Gold Mining CEO Mark Bristow highlighted the company's priorities and told the journalists this year's plans are to be achieved and the company will extend its influences while continuing to pay taxes according to this country's mining code. Mark Bristow. Reinvesting in gold mining, you have to, you're always mining gold and uh, this year our outlook for Kibali Gold Mine is it's going to achieve its plans and continue 
continue to pay its taxes and and uh, expand its influence in uh, Hotwele and the northeast of the uh, country. We're also investing in exploration, searching for new discoveries, and also replacing the gold we mine. So Kibali Gold Mine has more than 10 years of life, and every year we mine, we have been able to add some more. So for us, it's a very big investment. We believe there must be some more Kibago mines in northeastern Congo, and that's our focus. Uh, when I first came here, I said, we want to develop a new frontier for Congo uh, mining industry. And I believe that's what we're doing in that region of uh, Congo. This gold mining company has been operating in Kibali in the Democratic Republic of Congo's northeastern province of Ituri since 2009. That's indeed more than 10 years. Most of investors operating in the mining sector here have been describing this country's mining code as one of the harsh codes in the world. The current regime hasn't revisited the code up to now and this economical analyst Alan Matonda believes that this would be done as the current authorities need to look at the regional average. That was one of the polemic subjects of the general election. I think that we need to look at that because it's more like a progress from the current regime. We went for, I think, 2 to 3 percent to an average of 10 percent. So, to be honest with you, it's kind of a sharp increase. But when I look at other countries like Nigeria, and uh, Nigeria is more like a double that rate. You know, uh, people, other countries or big firms are being uh, pushing back. But uh, I think we have to look at the national average in the region to make a good uh, estimation. You know, in the mining industry, investments are very, very expensive. And you have to kind of plan on several years, 10 years, 20 years. So you have a lot of cost. So those big farmers uh, is in their interest to push back, especially because they know that uh, a lot of African countries, uh, there is a lack of transparency, corruption. So they will try to get the best deal of it, you know, and so we live in a capitalist world. So for them, you know, you have to try to get the best deal. But I think we should uh, look at the DRC interest. The Democratic Republic of Congo is one of the countries well known as a mineral rich in the world since different kinds of minerals are found here. But again, it's here in the DRC that we can meet people who are very poor. They have always learned that the country is rich, but it's like an insult for most of Congolese here. I then asked to this economist, Alan Matonda, how do we explain such a deep gap and how do Congolese on the ground benefit from this country's minerals? This is the problem. We see the part of the mining industry in our budget. That's a problem. Some critics talk about contracts with uh, Chinese companies toward like a uh, mining land. Those kind of contracts are not very transparent, you know. At the end of the day, maybe we are losing. The mining industry go with the, the cycle because the cyclical economy so just depends on the price on the international market. Those resources will end one day. It's best for us to, to grow the agriculture because we'll be able to employ more people. So with agriculture, you will be able to take people out of uh, unemployment, for sure. And indeed, the Democratic Republic of Congo has a high rate of unemployment as the thousands of youth graduating from the hundreds of universities are battling to try and get jobs in an existing job market. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa.
Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Our headlines up next to Than Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Thousands of Zimbabweans are expected to take part in a protest march to call for an end to sanctions imposed by the United States and the European Union. While vote counting after Botswana's general elections is still continuing, it appears as if the governing PDP will again be the winner. And the United Nations has reopened its office in the Nigerian capital, Abuja, more than eight years after Boko Haram militants destroyed it in a suicide attack. Those are the stories making headlines. Internationally acclaimed actor and director John Carney is calling on women actors to speak out loud against sexual exploitation within the industry. Kani says women must do this, even if it means disrupting production. Kani, who is a juror for the 10th annual Cape Town Schnitt Worldwide Short Film Festival, says he's proud about the number of women directors who have submitted work for the competition. Tandiswa Mao reports from Cape Town. Kani's decades-long career started in the turbulent 1970s in South Africa with protest theatre productions such as Siswe Banzi is Dead and Master Harold and the Boys. He says this year's submissions have been inspiring as more work is directed by women. In the 37 plays I saw judged with my panel, 19 were directed by women. I felt so proud because you could find a way and identify that the director was a woman. Because there's a sensitivity to detail. There's not a rush to complete and say what I want to say. There's an ease as the story evolves. There's a nurturing in it. And that is what is important in storytelling, is being sensitive. Dr. Gani and his fellow jurors, Gachisoledeha and Lauren Bukas, regaled the young audience with experiences from their own careers and sharing advice on compelling storytelling. Every generation has its own challenges. There isn't a generation that hasn't people who did not live before them. Therefore, reference is quite important to say, how did my mother make it to where we are? when she's a single woman working as a domestic servant. That is important that when I talk about my life today, I recognize that and I give it dignity. How did the issue of abuse and violence within African families or South African or any family that my mother kept silent, how do I then deal with that at my age? I'm not keeping silent. No one's going to shut me up. I was brought up. I will talk. 
founding festival manager Sean Dramond says the competition started in Switzerland in 2003 and was introduced to Cape Town seven years later. Eight other cities in the world like Cairo, Cannes, Moscow and Hong Kong will watch the same entries at the same time as Cape Town and vote on them. You sort of get to see how storytelling is universal between cultures no matter where in the world you are. Um, so it, it's a really great event. Kani will be honored next Thursday at the Market Theatre in Johannesburg for his contribution to the arts and entertainment field in South Africa. I'm Tandi Swamawi in Cape Town. Tanzania Women Lawyers Association has described the decision by the Court of Appeal to quash an appeal by the government of Tanzania seeking to allow earlier marriage as a huge victory to girls. The Mwaditile Managing Director of Twala told our reporter in Dar es Salaam that the Court of Appeal of Tanzania was upheld the landmark 2016 ruling by High Court of Tanzania which increased the age of marriage for girls and boys from 14 and 15 years respectively to 18 years. Gabriel Zakaria reports from Dar es Salaam. In 2016, the founder of Msichana Initiative, Rebecca Gyumi, opened the petition at the High Court of Tanzania challenging the Marriage Act of 1971, which allow a girl child to be married under 18 years against the Constitution of Tanzania. That states clearly that both boys and girls should not be allowed to get married below 18 years. In its ruling, the Court of Appeal said marriage under the age of 18 was constitutional, ending a long legal battle between child rights activists and the government of Tanzania. Kite Mwanditile, who is the managing director of Tanzania Women Lawyers Association, Taula, tells us more. Yesterday what happened, uh, Okay, there was um, um, this case needed to have some sort of uh, advocates who, uh, you know when you are a lawyer, um, you need to practice for a number of years to be able to appear before uh, Court of Appeal. And the initial case that was uh, the advocate was uh, Debra Kombola, who at that time could not appear before the Court of Appeal. So they requested our organization, Taula, to assist uh, in the uh, development of the appeals document, of which we did. And yesterday, that's when we got the victory. Now we know in this country, a girl child is not supposed to get married when they are child below 18 years. Mm. So now the government is, is tasked to review the marriage act that allow girls to get married. So now the age of marriage is above 18 years. So what is supposed to be done, you now we have the ruling. So now the government have got to work with the parliament to ensure that there is a revision of that provision in the law of marriage. In the latest development, the Court of Appeal has upheld the landmark 2016 ruling by the High Court. Two years ago, the High Court of Tanzania struck out the Section 13 and 17 of Marriage Act of 1971 that allowed girls to marry at the age of 14 and 15, and then 18 years for boys. A number of Dar es Salaam residents could not hide their feelings once the Court of Appeal made the ruling in favor of a girl child. What the court did is a new move towards girl child empowerment uh, in every aspect of their lives because it will give enough room for girls to finish their studies, uh, to have something to, to do. I mean, 
work for a living and also will give them enough room to grow so that they can be ready later to take uh, family challenges and well as family uh, problems and also they can be good uh, mothers to their children. What the court did is the right thing and we have to plowed with that because girls need a time to study, need a time to develop their education careers from uh, primary to university level. So when the court decided that it's helped them to have a room to get education. Uh, my personal comment, uh, I think it needs more discussions because the implementation of this uh, sometimes uh, it interrogates some of the traditions, laws, and some of the religions. So in implementation of this ruling, I think uh, it needs uh, discussions and the agreement of the whole of the society so that it will implement and everybody to be comfortable. But uh, on top of all, we should have to check that whether the law uh, doesn't, um, uh, doesn't um, bother or humiliate uh, the ladies in their right, for example, the right to get in a class, the right to uh, decide him or herself on the, on the right before the age that he, uh, allow him to stand alone. The court ruled that marriage under the age of 18 was illegal and it directed the government to raise the minimum age of marriage to 18 for both boys and girls within one year. Kate Mwanditile from the law firm Taula again. My understanding is there have been a number of interventions from us, the civil society, and at some point there were some meetings uh, between, uh, there was uh, um, a task force that the government, through the Ministry of um, Health, uh, Community Development, um, Gender, Elderly and Children, no, 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 through the Ministry of uh, Constitutional Legal Affairs, where we were working to ensure we, uh, the, the law of marriage is amended. So I think from now moving forward, my take is they will start to, the task force will be formed again and we develop the document that will be uh, taken to the parliament for the, for the review of those uh, provisions which are discriminative. All this came after a girl's right advocate and an award winner, Miss Rebecca Gyumi, petitioned the act at the Dar es Salaam High Court of Tanzania in 2016. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. London's Crystal Palace provided the venue for the first ever World Expo back in 1851. And next year, the Arab region hosts the iconic global event for the first time, which will include a United Nations pavilion, the organization announced on Thursday. Under the theme, We the People's Shaping our future together. The space will focus on the people the United Nations serve rather than the institution. As according to Maher Nasser, Director of Outreach for the UN's Department of Global Communications, who's leading the UN team at Expo 2020, he spoke to UN News May Yakub. I'm Anna Karmu with UN News. London's Crystal Palace provided the venue for the first ever World Expo back in 1851. And next year, the Arab region hosts the iconic global event for the first time, which will include a United Nations pavilion, the organization announced on Thursday. 
under the theme We the Peoples Shaping Our Future Together, the space will focus on the people the United Nations serve rather than the institution. That's according to Maha Nasser, Director of Outreach for the UN's Department of Global Communications, who is leading the UN team at Expo 2020. He spoke to UN News's May Yacoub. That's Mahir Nasser, Director of Outreach for the UN's Department of Global Communications, speaking to UN News' May Yakub. At 7.45, and our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoko. Good morning. South African Airways, SAA, has announced that its flight schedules have returned to normal following compliance checks conducted on some of its aircrafts. This after flights were grounded due to irregular findings uncovered during a recent audit conducted by the South African Civil Aviation Authority. Earlier this week, SACAA directed airlines ComAir SAA and Mango to conduct a verification exercise on their fleet of aircraft to ensure that some of the identified irregularities are not prevalent in the entire fleet. The impact of the recall led to some flight delays and cancellations. 
A total of 25 aircrafts in SAA's fleet were identified to undergo a compliance verification process as required by SACAA. SAA spokesperson Tladidadi. So far. 21 aircraft have now undergone the compliance verification process, resulting in an 84% completion rate of the identified aircraft. The remaining four are now undergoing a scheduled extended maintenance service. Since the return to normal flight schedule, SAA recorded an average on-time performance of 93% for domestic, regional and international flights. A Japanese conglomerate, Toyota Tsushu, is eyeing the regional market with its Kenya-made fertilizer as it seeks to expand its agricultural activities. The firm, in its 2019 integrated report, said it would use its established car sales network to promote the Baraka brand of fertilizer that it blends at its Eldoret plant. Toyota Tsushu... Fertilizer Africa Limited, the processing subsidiary of the conglomerate, started blending activities in 2016, becoming the second firm of Demia Limited to set up such a facility in Kenya. South African supermarket retailer Pick and Pay Stores Limited has posted a 9.5% rise in first-half earnings, with the strong growth in its core domestic operations outweighing challenges in Zambia and Zimbabwe. A Pick and Pay, which also sells clothes, said comparable headline earnings per share for the 26 weeks ended September the 1st rose to 85.3 South African cents from a restated 77.67 South African cents a year earlier. Reported headlines HEPS, which includes the impact of hyperinflation accounting in Zimbabwe, rose 17.5%. A new report has found that Chadian people living in former coalfield areas are still suffering by the devastating effects of colliery closures. Now, the research by the Coalfield Regeneration Trust found that uh, there are fewer jobs, pay is lower, and more people have to claim benefits in former coal mining areas. The trust research said former coal fields have a combined population of 5.7 million, which is roughly the same as a typical English region and more than the whole of either Scotland or Wales. Kenya's independent citizen TV reported, rather, says Kenya's top telecoms operator Safaricom has named Peter Ndegwa as its new CEO. East Africa's most profitable company, which is part held by South Africa's Vodacom and Britain's Vodafone, has been led uh, since July by an interim CEO after the death of long-serving boss Bob Collymore. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360.25 Nigerian Naira, 10.70 Botswana Pula, 102.16 Kenyan Shilling, and 13.18 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.2 Brazilian roll, 63.96 Russian ruble, 70.62 Indian rupee, 7.6 Chinese yuan, and 14.64 to the South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold $1,502, platinum $9.25 per ounce, brand crude oil $61.33 a barrel. It's Channel Africa, your favorite channel.
Figile, how many hours is it? 11 o'clock South African time, AM. Yeah, it's counting from now. It's uh, Sunday. Yeah, it's Sunday. So we'd say it is just under 24 hours. Hmm. Yeah, it's under 24 hours. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're, we're looking forward to it, but uh, yes, cautiously. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with rugby news. It could be 48 hours or so, but let, let, let me tell you that the Springboks have made one false change in that effect to the Victoria's quarterfinal clash over Japan with wingers Bungosi coming in for injured Chelsea Colby on the right wing for the semi-final clash against Wales this Sunday. Erasmus explains that Colby had not fully recovered following his injury, an English injury against Japan and that he believes Nkosi is the right call. However, he also confesses that losing Colby will be a big blow. So, as you guys can see, the only change is, is just Jeslin Colby hasn't recovered fully from his uh, ankle injury and it's just a boon Kosi coming in for him. It is a big blow. I think everybody knows the quality of, of play he is and, and the contributions he made. Uh, but I think if, if we looked uh, purely at his performance in the previous game, his um, ankle definitely had an influence on his performance and, and the way he performed previously. And, and we just feel uh, a fully fit uh, Sabu and the way Sabu has been performing. You know, if you compare the two, a 70% Cheslin isn't better than 100% Sabu. So it is a blow. Uh, uh, but then again, you know, uh, we've got full confidence in Sabu and especially the way he's been playing. He certainly deserves his chance. Ngozi will join his devastating Sharks back three partner in Magazole Mabimbi, who has scored a scorching five tries at the World Cup to date, to be joint leading try scorer with Wales Josh Adams and ousted Kotaro Matsushima of Japan. Erasmus says he believes the try scoring machines would not disappoint again on the day. Magazole, no, else Magazole is for us. The Wings is there to score tries, we all know that, and uh, since we all started playing rugby, the Wings, when we were, were small boys, the Wings were the guys that were supposed to score tries, and currently it's happening in our team, and, and, and it's great that it's happening, uh, it's great that we're getting the balls to the Wings, uh, and, and they're scoring tries, and Sabu's got a great try scoring record, uh, you know, Cheslin's got a good try scoring record, uh, Apu we had when he was playing, and, and uh, Makazola is, is doing the same, so yes, uh, they are not very experienced, but they are, they are doing the job, and, and that's why having a calm head uh, with Willie at the back, um, uh, which I know is, is copying a little bit of flack currently, and we all understand why, but having a calm head between uh, two wingers who hasn't got 30, 40 test caps in the semi-final is pretty important in many aspects of the game, you know, defence, kicking game, uh, helping calm the nerves and stuff like that. Uh, so, yes, having Makazoli in the form he is, on to football news, just after Bafana Bafana had lost their opening African Cup of Nations game against Ivory Coast 1-0 in Cairo, Egypt, Minister of Sport, Arts and Culture, Natim Tejo spoke about the football in Daba that the country needed to have five months later that Ministerial Football in Daba is going to take place in November the 15th until the 17th. Mteja tries to get a clear picture on South African football. 
it is happening. Uh, it would be next month. Uh, we'll just we'll communicate the dates uh, for that. But it's it's important that we do that uh, for us because we we think that uh, football as the number one love sport in the country need to be assisted uh, to get everybody on board. We are not performing uh, at our level. Uh, right now we're talking about Egypt and so we're struggling on the continent. We've not even spoken about the international uh, space, as it were. So therefore, we need everybody, uh, yourselves, as journalists, uh, you know, administrators, coaches, everybody must come together and map the way forward. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Ethiopian activist calls for calm after 16 die-in clashes, and Afri Forum wants to prosecute South African opposition party leader Julius Malema. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week from myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutura Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Zahara with a song titled Mandel. Talipunga, Telagufa, Matiba, Molumsila, Velabam Bensele, Yem Yem, a global icon, internationally acclaimed.
The first commander of Mkonto was Israel. A torch bearer who captured world attention. A trend set apart excellence. 27 years behind bars in a concrete jungle. Indeed, the long road to freedom. The long walk to freedom. Yeah,